Hello, and thank you for returning again. And this is the second last of a six-part series on the take-home messages from the AUA 2017 annual meeting in Boston. Today's topics will be bladder cancer, transplantation, and female urology and incontinence. Bladder cancer is presented by Dr. Angela Smith. Dr. Manga, Dr. Thrasher, members and guests, thank you for the opportunity to present this year's bladder cancer take-home points. It's been a fantastic year for bladder cancer research, in addition to several plenaries, including challenging case discussions, surgical techniques, and the unveiling of the 2017 Muscle Invasive Bladder Cancer Guidelines. There were also over uh, 300 abstracts presented in a variety of categories. Since the basic science highlights uh, were already presented, I'm going to focus on clinical highlights and provide you with 12 clinical pearls to take home to your practice. With regard to surveillance, an abstract looked at the role of upper tract imaging for high-grade non-invasive surveillance. They looked at about 400 scans and found that only 4 or 1% were diagnosed with an upper tract, can upper tract cancer. Interestingly, all had had low-grade TA bladder cancer previously. The number needed to screen was 115 to detect a single upper tract cancer, with the take-home that upper tract surveillance may have limited benefits in high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer surveillance. Another study looked at over 2,000 cystectomy patients, and they developed a risk-adapted protocol for surveillance based on stage, age, and comorbidity, and this risk-based strategy may streamline cost and efficacy in the future. With regard to urine biomarkers, CX Bladder Resolve was evaluated. This is a test to identify and stratify high-grade or late-stage disease among hematuria patients. It accurately identified 95% of high-grade urothelial cancer and had an equally high negative predictive value of 99% for low-risk patients. Another study looked at CK20 and IGF2 expression in conjunction with urine cytology. They found that the, that increased sensitivity to 93%. Um, it also slightly reduced specificity to 84% in their validation cohort. So several urine biomarkers may have utility in risk stratifying our bladder cancer patients. Several abstracts looked at the theme of androgen receptor as it relates to bladder cancer a variety of ways. The first uh, compared men with and without ADT and found that ADT was an independent risk factor for intravesical recurrence. Another study looked at a cohort of nearly 43,000 patients with BPH uh, using finasteride, had 87-month follow-up, and found that finasteride was protective of bladder cancer risk in Caucasians and Hispanics, but not so in African Americans. And finally, androgen receptor activity as it relates to treatment. One abstract found that androgen receptor activity correlated with sensitivity to radiotherapy in bladder cancer, and another looked at receptor activity that modulated direct cytotoxicity of BCG in bladder cancer cells. So the take-home point here is that emerging evidence exists that androgen receptor activity may be related to recurrence and treatment in bladder cancer. A late-breaking abstract this year focused on blue light flexible cystoscopy. This was a prospective multi-center study for patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. They looked at patients undergoing surveillance with blue light flexible cystoscopy, and a subset of those went on to TURBT if that was suspicious. They found that blue light flexible cystoscopy improved detection of recurrent bladder cancer by 21%, and they also noted that repeat use of blue light cysto with CISVU is safe, with a take-home that blue light flexible cystoscopy should be considered for patients in surveillance of bladder cancer recurrence. 
So moving on to intravesical treatment, the results of the SWOG S0337 study uh, were presented. This was a phase three randomized controlled trial of post-TURBT intravesical gemcitabine versus saline for recurrent low-grade disease. Gemcitabine reduced recurrence of low-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer by 47%, but did not for high-grade disease. They found it was safe, well-tolerated, with no difference in adverse events, with a take-home that intravesical gemcitabine is a new standard for suspected low-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Another study looked at chemoablation of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer with Vesagel, which is a formulation of mitomycin C in a hydrogel. They looked at two concentrations of Vesagel compared to mitomycin C and saline as an alternative to TURBT. They found excellent complete response rates, 86% in the higher concentration group, uh, larger tumors particularly so, and no difference in recurrence-free survival. So Vesagel has chemoablative potential as an alternative to TUR in our bladder cancer patients and uh, select patients. With regard to cancer vaccines with BCG, uh, there was a randomized controlled trial uh, presented BCG versus BCG plus Panvac as a a therapeutic cancer vaccine. It showed higher rate of all immunologic responses with the vaccine. Another abstract highlighted outcomes of intradermal BCG priming prior to intravesical induction for high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. It showed that priming improved T-cell mediated cytotoxicity and increased urinary IL-2 and IL-8. These results actually informed the now activated prime trial that's comparing Tokyo uh, uh, um, strain and they're also going to be looking at prime versus BCG only. The take-home here is that combining BCG with vaccines such as PANVAC and intradermal priming may have a role in increasing efficacy of BCG immunotherapy for high-risk disease. So what about BCG refractory disease? Uh, There's an interim analysis of a single-arm phase two trial uh, looking at CG0070 oncolytic adenovirus for BCG unresponsive disease. And they found uh, encouraging results, six-month complete response rate of 47%, even higher, 58% in pure CIS, 50% in CIS-containing tumors. Drug-related events were relatively low, 4.5% for clavian-3 complications and no clavian-4 and 5 complications. So the take-home is that CG0070 shows promise for BCG unresponsive disease, but we'll have to await further follow-up. So with regard to patient-reported outcomes, we have a wealth of literature looking at quality of life in muscle-invasive bladder cancer, but one abstract this year uh, looked at non-muscle-invasive bladder cancer. Uh, This was a SEER-MHOS study, which compared 325 bladder cancer patients to non-cancer controls from baseline, so before cancer diagnosis to follow-up. They found that non-invasive bladder cancer patients were more likely to have worse urinary leakage and physical health-related quality of life, but not mental health-related quality of life. Another study looked at financial toxicity as it impacts bladder cancer health-related quality of life. A quarter of bladder cancer patients in this study endorsed financial toxicity. It was more common among non-invasive bladder cancer, and it was also uh, associated with worse physical and mental health-related quality of life. Twelve abstracts focused on variant histology this year in a variety of ways. Uh, two looked at TRBT and showed that it had poor detection of variant histology, poor agreement with micropapillary invariants, and another study looked at TUR, which demonstrated the correct variant in only 68% of cases uh, compared to uh, final pathology on cystectomy. 
This has implications because neoadjuvant chemo outcomes differ for variant histology. There's an overall, survive ben overall survival benefit for neuroendocrine tumors only. Uh, neuroendocrine, micropapillary, and sarcomatoid were less likely to be upstage, and squamous cell actually had worse outcomes. Uh, different recurrence patterns were also noted among variant histologies. Squamous cell had the highest local recurrences, were more common to have lung metastases. Adenocarcinoma had the highest bone metastases. So the take-home here is that there's a need for biomarkers to increase our diagnostic value of TUR for variant histology, since there's an important role for treatment and surveillance. Among node-positive bladder cancer patients, adjuvant chemo was associated with improved survival among node-positive disease. Also, with regard to extended uh, lymph node dissection uh, templates, 3% of nodes in these extended, superextended templates were not in the standard nodal di uh, dissection template. The presence of node-positive disease in the extended templates were higher for T3, T4 disease. And there was also uh, a role of frozen section to determine lymph node dissection extent with a concordance between frozen section and final path of 99%. Uh, with regard to molecular subtypes for neoadjuvant chemoselection, a study showed upregulation of DNA repair mechanisms, which signified chemosensitivity and predicted PT0 status. Three separate abstracts found very similar results, and molecular subtypes predict staging and survival. Luminal and basal tumors were downstaged with neoadjuvant chemo, but only uh, overall survival was improved with only basal, and P53-like tumors had a poor prognosis regardless of neoadjuvant chemo. So take-home here is understanding DNA repair mechanisms and molecular subtypes have a future role for neoadjuvant chemo selection. And finally, uh, the long-awaited results of the RAZER trial were presented. This was a multi-center phase three randomized trial of open versus robotic cystectomy. No difference in their primary outcome of two-year progression-free survival, as you can see here, an overall survival. There's no difference in overall margins. However, uh, there was an association between the robotic approach and higher soft tissue margins. No differences in nodal yield, complications stage. Robotic patients had lower blood loss, transfusion rates, and length of stay. Open cystectomy had a decreased operative time. So the take-home here is that robotic cystectomy is not inferior to open cystectomy with regard to two-year progression-free survival and overall survival. However, robotics did have increased soft tissue margin, and we'll have to take that into consideration moving forward. Thank you for your attention, and safe travels. We continue with transplantation as presented by Dr. Hannah Chu. Thanks to uh, Dr. Manga and Dr. Thrasher and to the AUA. We had a very exciting meeting this year for transplantation and vascular surgery. Over 150 abstracts were submitted. Um, over 60 were actually presented here at the meeting. We had three moderated poster sessions, a video session, um, and our Urologic Society for Transplantation and Renal Surgery annual meeting also took place. Um, there were a number of exceptional abstracts. I selected a few from each session to just try to highlight some of the uh, most important papers. There were a lot of abstracts presented regarding living donation. Um, this one was interesting looking at social economic status and demographic data of the non-directed living do kidney donor population. It was a review of the NKR data, and they found that most non-directed donors were actually in the upper end of the economic spectrum, um, suggesting that maybe we really need to look at trying to remove some of the financial disincentives to increase the number of kidney donors. 
A paper from Singapore looked at visceral obesity and its effect on renal function uh, postoperatively after donor nephrectomy. They measured visceral obesity on preoperative CT scan. At one year, patients with visceral obesity experienced a more significant decline in kidney function. It was associated with a BMI greater than 25, male gender, and older age. And they suggest that maybe we consider looking at adiposity markers as measured by cross-sectional CT um, in our preoperative kidney donor evaluations. A paper from Japan looked at pre-transplant antibody removal and ABO ABO incompatibility. Um, They had a desensitization protocol with rituximab, calcineurin inhibitors, MMF, and methylprednisone, and they found that pre-transplant antibody removal could be um, eliminated as a requirement if serum antibody titers were low enough. With the Global Kidney Exchange, they've now generated 27 transplants to date. Each chain has produced 12, 9, and 6 transplants, and several patients have actually been transplanted with a PRA above 80. An interesting paper uh, with respect to deceased kidney donation came from Canada and looked at survival outcomes from DCD renal transplant um, based on donor age. Um, They looked at donors over 50 and over 60. Results with grafts over 50 were similar between the DCD and DVD recipients, Um, but once the uh, graft was above 60, graft survival was similar between the groups still, but patient survival was inferior, and they recommend caution in utilizing DCD grafts above age 60. Uh, Dr. Coe presented the first uh, U.S. experience with penile transplantation this year. It was a patient with a history of a subtotal penectomy for penile cancer. Um, So far, they've had successful short-term results with voiding, sensation, tumescence, uh, using conventional immunosuppression. Um, With respect to recipient management, there were several papers looking at bladder management. Uh, A a group from Egypt looked at the necessity of pre-transplant bladder cycling. Um, They did a small prospective randomized trial where they looked um, at patients with defunctionalized bladders to see if uh, program bladder cycling was beneficial. They did not find any clinical advantage regarding postoperative urologic complications, graft function, lower urinary tract symptoms, or systematic capacity. Um, There were several uh, abstracts looking at perinephric fluid collections after transplant. Um, One looked at uh, collections after pediatric renal transplant. It was a retrospective review of their cases. Found that perinephric fluid collections are very common, the majority of which did not require intervention. Larger uh, volume fluid collections were more associated with intervention, usually secondary to lymphocytes. Robotic kidney transplant is uh, coming along. There were a number of papers this year with updated results for robotic kidney transplant. Um, This was a video uh, submission looking at robotic ureteral reconstruction for ureteral complications. Um, This group did five ureteral pilostomies, one ureteroureterostomy. They had excellent results, no graft loss, recurrent strictures, or pyelonephritis. Only one case was converted to open. Um, and they're suggesting that robotic-assisted reconstruction of the transplant ureters is a feasible uh, thing and can safely be performed with excellent graft survival and low complication rates. With respect to malignancy and transplantation, there were several abstracts this year looking at uh, renal cell carcinoma. One looked at the wait time for patients with renal malignancy-associated ESRD. It was a review of the USRDS data. Um, And they found that renal malignancy-related end-stage renal disease patients who had a shorter waiting period, so less than two years, had better overall survival um, than those who waited longer than two years with similar cancer-specific mortality, um, suggesting these patients do better with a shorter wait time. 
This was a survey of U.S. transplant centers looking at the effect of treatment modality for small renal masses um, on the time for, time for eligibility for renal transplant candidates. Um, and they found that the time to become eligible in patients with T1A renal cell was affected by the treatment modality with a shorter eligibility time for radical nephrectomy and a longer time for focal ablation. Um, tumor size and the experience of the transplant program affected the ability time as well. Our Urologic Society for Transplantation and Renal Surgery meeting was really exciting this year. We also have several resident and fellow abstract presentations that happened during this portion of the meeting. I'll highlight a couple of those. Um, one uh, was presented by Dr. Lamb, a resident from Oregon, who presented their experience with transplantation of adult kidneys into small children. Um, this was a really nice presentation looking retrospectively at some of their cases and identifying some of the complexities associated with pediatric transplantation. Dr. Christia from Ottawa presented an um, abstract on transplanting kidneys from donors with small renal masses, um, looking at a strategy to alleviate the growing organ shortage. Um, their team did a literature review of all the published cases of kidneys transplanted from donors with small renal masses, um, both kidneys that actually had the tumor excised and the contralateral kidney. There were 131 kidneys transplanted who had had a tumor excision. 65% of those were from living donors. 27 contralateral kidneys have also been transplanted, and so far on data review, the tumor occurrence rate appears to be about 1.5%. Um, he was also the recipient of the 2017 NOVIC Award. This is an award that we give out to residents and fellows with the best abstract presentation in the USTRS meeting. We also had an excellent international hour this year. We had really interesting perspectives on kidney transplant from Nepal, Iran, Egypt, and Vietnam. Uh, very interesting to see some of the difficulties, challenges, and successes um, that they've had with transplantation. Um, a personal favorite of mine was a session that we had this year. Um, Dr. James Porter presented on how to avoid and deal with robo-renal surgical disasters. Really, really interesting presentation um, regarding uh, complications and management of laparoscopic renal surgery. Um, we also had an expert panel. Um, and I would highly recommend this uh, portion of the um, transplant meeting to anyone interested in kidney transplant or renal surgery, and we hope to see you next year in San Francisco. Thanks. And we conclude today's episode with female urology and incontinence. Thank you for the opportunity, Dr. Thrasher and Dr. Monger, for being able to present take-home messages in the area of female urology and incontinence. I had the pleasure of reviewing 120 abstracts that were not basic science, and I selected 27 for review today. Starting in the area of prolapse, we know that colpoclesis is typically used for those that are frail and or elderly. And Suskind attempted to determine if frailty predicts the type of prolapse surgery and odds for post-op complication. She found that age was more strongly associated with colpoclesis than frailty, yet frailty was more strongly associated with post-op complications for all prolapse surgeries. A group from Arizona presented the largest series comparing dynamic MRI with physical exam findings. They found poor correlation for apical and posterior compartment prolapse, yet found good correlation for the anterior prolapse, which was not of diagnostic value. Yet dynamic MRI was better than physical examination for detection of enterocele and had diagnostic value. Two groups uh, presented in the area of sacrocolpopexy Y-mesh as it related to outcomes. The first compared two common wide-pore polypropylene wide meshes. They found 100% apical prolapse success for both. They found a rate of de novo stress incontinence of 8% for light and 10% for heavy, and they found no significant differences in mesh erosion.
The second group compared a polymer mesh to a more commonly used polypropylene Y-mesh. They found storage and sexual symptoms were better in the, in the polymer group. The polymer group also had excellent, excellent biocompatibility, reduced foreign body reaction, reduced bacterial colonization, yet maintained tensile strength. There were two groups that presented on their pelvic uh, mesh excision and outcomes. The first from Virginia Mason looked at 47 patients, status post-partial or complete mesh excision with 14-month follow-up. Preoperatively, 80% of these patients had pain, 83% had exposure, and postoperatively, 68% were improved. The second group from the University of Arizona looked at 84 patients who, were past, who had uh, had vaginal mesh removed. 83 were deemed better post-op. 35% of those required at least one reoperation. There are two randomized placebo-controlled phase three trials on SER120, which is a low-dose desmopressin nasal spray. Scott McDermott and his group did an open-label extension trial of long-term safety and efficacy over a two-year period. They found significant and durable improvements sustained over two years with no evidence of hyponatremia. We know that nocturnal symptoms are bothersome, yet there's very little bladder functional data at that time of the day or night. So a group from UK performed overnight ambulatory urodynamic studies on patients with nocturia and nocturnal enuresis. 80% of those with nocturia and 88% of those with nocturnal enuresis demonstrated detrusor overactivity on ambulatory overnight urodynamic testing. On to the area of interstitial cystitis. We know that decreased mucosal cell proliferation is an etiologic factor in interstitial cystitis. In murine models, systemic pioglitazone has increased bladder mucosal cell proliferation. A group from Stanford using a rat model found that pioglitazone has improved bladder function, both capacity and function, and cyclophosphamide-induced cystitis. Mike Chancellor and his colleagues presented a novel research model engaging multiple stockholders for biomarker development. They sampled men and women from 46 U.S. states. They did a multiplex analysis and discovered three proteins with highly significant differences in between IC with and without ulcers and controls. This crowdsourced research is very beneficial in IC research, but more importantly in biomarker development. There were three different groups that used the National Health and Nutritional Examination Survey to evaluate stress incontinence risk factors. The first set of Syracuse evaluated advanced maternal age as, res as related to incontinence, and they found that incontinence related to vaginal delivery and not age at time of childbirth. The second group out of USC told us that a significant inverse correlation between serum testosterone and incontinence exists. In fact, women in the lowest quartile of serum testosterone concentration were more likely to have stress incontinence and mixed urinary incontinence. And the third group found, using bone mineral density data, to identify an independent association between osteoporosis and stress incontinence due to connective tissue weakness. A group from Japan has identified a new agent that may be beneficial in stress incontinence treatment. They focused on tramadol and investigated its effects on the urethral continence reflex in a rat model with an active urethral closure mechanism during sneezing. Tramadol enhanced urethral baseline pressure by 79%, and it was effective for enhancing the active urethral continence reflex during sneezing at the spinal level. Two groups evaluated prospectively the effects of bariatric surgery on pelvic floor disorders. The first looked at bariatric surgery and found it was associated with a significant improvement in pelvic floor disorders and sexual performance. The second found that increased age and abdominal circumference raises the risk of female stress incontinence. And in fact, an age greater than 52 years and menopause related to stress incontinence persistence after weight loss.
There are two different bulky injection abstracts I was going to focus on. The first included women in the Cook Myocyte-sponsored stress incontinence study. These are women that had continence surgery in the past, but still had stress incontinence. All of these women had autologous muscle-derived cell bulky injections and greater than 50% reduction in their leak frequency at one in two years. Therefore, they deem this a safe and durable option for a complex population. The second is from Southwestern, and they evaluated those patients that were in retention after macroplastique. A third of those patients had post-op urinary retention, defined as the third 24 to 48 hours of catheterization after bulking. At two years, they were dry or significantly improved and declined further stress incontinence therapy, more so than those who had never been in retention. There is a lot of controversy as to whether the location of a mid-urethral sling along the urethra correlates with outcomes. The group from UCLA reviewed patients who underwent translabial ultrasound prior to mid-urethral sling excision. At almost five-year follow-up, they found that 80% of their patients with slings outside the mid-urethra were cured, and 20% had refractory stress incontinence. They therefore believe that the mid-urethral sling's ability to act as a hammock of support is what makes it successful and not necessarily exactly where it lies along the urethra. Now, the University of Colorado submitted an abstract where they determined the difference in outcome and reoperation rates between simple and complex patients post-autologous pubovaginal sling. They found overall improvement rates of 96% in simple and 93% in complex. The complex patients were most likely to need additional continence procedures. They found that mesh excision at the time of pubovaginal sling increased post-op retention and reoperation rates more than pubovaginal slings alone. The group from MUSC examined urinary retention after slings in patients with or without valsalva voiding. We know that patients with detrusor underactivity have an increased risk of post-op retention. Yet they found that reproduction of symptoms in urodynamics or symptom score do not correlate with risk of urinary retention and valsalva voiders or normal bladder contractility. There were two groups that challenged our normal practices of urodynamics. The first assessed occult stress incontinence by physical exam and by urodynamics. Urodynamics and physical exam were equivalent in demonstrating occult stress incontinence. Thus, they concluded urodynamics with and without pessary, excuse me, with and without prolapse reduction is not mandatory. The second group looked at video urodynamics as related to patient positioning. We know that video urodynamics are typically performed in the supine or standing position, with standing being enhanced by gravity. Almost 17% of their stress incontinence patients required video urodynamics to be done in the standing position to demonstrate the leakage. They therefore recommend that video urodynamics should be performed in both the lying and standing positions. The group from Beaumont looked at effects of neuromodulation on their urogenital pain. They compared outcomes between pudendal and sacral neuromodulation. Both groups experienced modest but similar improvements in pelvic pain. Pudendal was effective in those who failed sacral neuromodulation and used preferentially in patients with a primary pain diagnosis. A group from Stony Brook looked at the application of interstim by different disciplines. They found that interstim is placed by 60% by urologists, 15% by gynecologists, and 19% by colorectal surgeons in New York State. Obviously, this number for colorectal surgeons relates to the FDA approval for fecal incontinence recently. There was no statistical difference in revision or removal rates based on history of fellowship in FPMRS and those without a surgical specialty. And last but not least, actually, second to last but not least, um, so a group from Pittsburgh looked at foot stim, which is a non-invasive neuromodulation for overactive bladder, and they attempted to define that the ideal stimulation duration in refractory OAB between 30 minutes and three hours daily for, for one week. 
They found that both durations decreased urge incontinence frequencies, yet the three-hour group had better improvement of all OAB symptoms. So I want to thank all of the contributors to this presentation. I know they put in a lot of work, and I want to thank you for your attention. Have a great afternoon. Very nice.